Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Gabe, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Absolutely. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. I am Gabe Gums. I am the Chief Innovation Officer at a data security organization named Spirian. Um, We're headquartered down in the southeast of the United States. We've been in business for some 16, 17 years or so. Uh, I myself, I've been in data security for the better part of just coming up on 20 years, a a whopping two decades of uh, slogging through the challenges of of security in the world. I got my start, as many of us did back then, in the networking side of the world and kind of quickly transitioned into security a few years thereafter. Uh, Security had always been in and around a lot of what I'd been doing kind of under uh, on the outskirts of my professional life. So there were, there were a lot of uh, community driven security groups at the time. Um, that's probably the fanciest way you'll ever hear anyone talk about uh, maybe the alt 2600 clubs and similar things. Um, <laughs> and uh, I spent, most of my career as a, a practitioner, architect, engineer, um, before transitioning into into building security products. And so now I spend the majority of my time helping solve problems for organizations, big and small, by, uh, by bringing technologies to market that help make their lives easier and safer. What would you say is your personal why? That thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do? The alarm clock. No, um, <laughs> the, the worst answer Simon Sinek would ever, ever, ever hope for. Uh, you know, my personal why is tied to, to my passion for helping and sharing. I really, really, really feel it a, a kind of a personal mission to, to share the things I've, I've learned and, and the things that uh, have been taught to me um, with others. I, I, I certainly did not get here by myself. And so there is a, there's a strong driving force inside of me that, that appreciates giving back. Uh, and that means giving back to the security community. It means giving back to, to the world at large. And the best way I can do that is through the, the talents I have uh, in the information security field. It's the thing that, that I'm certainly most passionate about you know, in, uh, in, in my professional life and, and even in my personal life in a number of ways. There's something in your LinkedIn profile description that stuck out to me. I, I did a little bit of creeping before we hopped on here. And in that description, you mentioned that you often live at the intersection of storytelling and technology. And I imagine your passion for that intersection is in part what's led you to do things like hosting the Privacy Please podcast. Can you talk a bit more about what this space means to you? I mentioned a minute ago that uh, you know part of my why is about being able to give back and to teach and, and to educate folks uh, on these various topics. And that's where that intersection between storytelling and technology lives. A lot of times security can be positioned as this esoteric dark arts uh, you know, career path that is, is not really approachable to many. And a lot of times also in the business world, a lot of the concepts that we're trying to convey to our business partners in other parts of, of the organization don't come from necessarily technology or even security backgrounds. And so being able to, to express uh, many different many different ideas through storytelling, I find really, really brings it home for folks and and makes it real for them. It helps them understand both the challenges as well as the paths forward. And with regards to privacy, please, absolutely. So 
one of the reasons why we began Privacy Please was to tell more of those stories. And, and for those that, that have listened to it or may tune into it after this, one of the things you'll notice, it's, it's an extremely conversational style because what we're, really, what we're really getting at is telling the stories of our guests and understanding their stories, their lived experiences, their lived experiences in security and privacy and how those things are applicable to our listeners. Today, we're going to dig a bit into privacy policies like the General Data Protection Regulation, and the California Consumer Privacy Act, both of which are very long names that are a mouthful. For folks that haven't spent much time in this space, what are these sorts of regulations typically trying to accomplish? There's one primary thing they're trying to accomplish, and that is protecting the privacy of consumers, putting that power back into the consumer's hands as the digital transaction world has collected, gathered, stored, analyzed uh, information on on subjects, on people in particular. There are a lot of really good uses for for that data, everything from being able to help form uh, other types of policies, civic policies, but it also does get used in, in ways that aren't always to the best intent of the of the data subjects themselves. Uh, you know, on the far end of the, the nefarious spectrum, we could we could cite, uh, you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, on the not so far end of the spectrum, uh, we can we can cite the, the more mishandling of people's privacy, right? Just the 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 lack of of care when when it's entrusted with those with those individuals. And suppose both CCPA and GDPR, if you're looking for the non mouthful version, <laughs> is uh, they're both geared towards ensuring that organizations do a number of things that they they take a privacy first first approach. GDPR refers to that as privacy by design, as well as empower the users to be able to take control of their privacy, to be able to dictate how their information can be shared, and more importantly, how it how it should not be shared, who it can be shared with, and who it cannot be shared with, and things of that nature. Uh, and on top of those two, we, we see similar laws having emerged across the entire planet, Brazil, South Africa, you name it, just about every d- developed country uh, has some form of regulation either already passed or currently in in legislation. Uh, and here stateside, because we're a fabulous amalgam of, of a bunch of, of different little entities, uh, all 50 of them, uh, 50 different states plus three territories, what we see is a lot of uh, state level regulations also under eyes, which is what CCPA. So that one's actually not a federal uh, regulation um, in the same way that GD, it, I apologize, in the way that GDPR is a big overarching regulation meant to govern the EU. Uh, CCPA really is just intended to cover California citizens or those that do business inside of California. I, th- I think a base concept that I'm, I'm hearing in there is essentially that, you know, I as a person, if uh, there's if data about me is collected or through, about my actions or things related to that is collected, that uh, the intent is like I should have some control or ownership of either that data or what's done with it. Is that is that like what folks should kind of take from from that? Well, I'll turn the question around to you, Ryan, because it, it is your data that is in, in the hands of all of these organizations. Do you feel as though you should have that control of your data? Ah, turn it back on me. 
Yeah, and bear in mind this is an opinion, but I I, I think yes, uh, ultimately. Right. But yeah, and and I'm sure you think that that way for the same reasons that uh, you 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 might own curtains, right? It's not about whether or not you, anything nefarious is happening inside your home. You respect and value your privacy, and your data very much tells a lot of stories about you. Um, in fact, no matter how close your blinds are, your data tells way more information about you than I would ever know by simply standing outside of your home and peering in, in through your blinds. Not that I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a part of all of this is a uh, a concept that uh, some of these laws share, which is the the concept of the right to be forgotten. The idea that you have the ability to compel an organization that's holding this this data that we're talking about uh, or data about you, and um, you could ask them essentially to like delete it and and remove it from their infrastructure. Uh, can you talk a bit about that and and uh, the importance that sort of provision has in in those like structures? Sure. The right to be forgotten is an interesting story in and of itself. This is another one of those intersections that, that I like to recall. So the genesis of it, it was based on an individual, uh, I believe he was in Spain, uh, who had an incident early in his life that was still showing up on the internet and he wanted it removed. He was many years removed from that incident, believed it was harming him in, in, in future opportunities and wanted that to be removed. And so took this all the way to, through the courts and they ultimately removed ruled that he had a right to be forgotten. That information had changed and had been updated, but the information that all these organizations held on him had not. That concept has since carried forward um, beyond just the, the right to be forgotten on the internet, but the right to be forgotten within the organization we do business with. Simply because I transact business with you once, does that give you the right to continuously know these things about me in perpetuity? Yes, you needed my home address to have delivered books to me, but do you need it beyond that if I haven't given you consent to use it beyond that? And the answer is ultimately no, right? And, and again, turning it to, to you a second ago, I think you might even agree, if you had shared that information with me once in the past for one very specific purpose, and now I'm using it for a very wholly different purpose later in the future, you probably would like the right for Gabe to forget where you actually live. Yeah, and, and you're correct. I, I, I am of that, that uh, temperament with this, or, and I do hold that opinion. Um, in fact, I kind of, as a practitioner in, in software development, my, uh, my view on, on kind of the collection of information is, you know, I should collect it for as long as I need it, and then only use it for that purpose. And then, yeah. And the right to be forgotten works on the tail end of that. On the front end of that, GDPR equally put in some uh, some regulation that states that you should only collect the data you need and you have to have a lawful basis for collecting it. So if you are in the business of delivering books, I'm just picking on, on something that everyone might be familiar with, right? right? You, you are a, a digital where you're a digital storefront, you, you sell books. You probably don't need to know my sex in order to to deliver that service to me. So why should you collect that data in the first place, right? Like you don't need to know my sex, my religion, my age. You, you don't need any of that information for the purpose of processing that transaction. And things like GDPR says that you don't have a lawful basis for for collecting that information, then you can't and shouldn't have that information. I imagine something that comes up as a, as a difficulty, whether it's like trying to prove compliance with this requirement, or even if you're the organization trying to manage it, is the idea of, in a way, you kind of have to prove a negative, right? If you don't have information about someone, uh, it's kind of hard to then like prove necessarily that you that you don't somewhere. Um, does that kind of act as a point of consternation uh, between organizations and, and regulators? 
there is a ton of hairy and gray area in here. So there are a couple of other things in the mix. First, there are a number of carve outs for legal exceptions as to why you can still hold on to some information. And some of it may be everything from tax purposes. You have to be able to account for the fact that uh, you paid you paid, uh, you collected taxes on behalf of a book you sold to me in the state I lived in. Um, and some of it is uh, beyond that. So some of it is is more geared towards research and, and even policing. So there are a ton of carve outs. So let's put those uh, on the side, but I, I wanted to, to make sure we made mention of them first. The other is, and what, what you're describing is kind of a technological challenge of, well, how do I prove to you I don't have it if I deleted it, right? And more importantly, how do I know I don't have it if I deleted it? The answer there is there are a number of different ways that this comes to bear in the real world from a technology perspective. Um, I've, I've seen approaches, everything from you know encrypting and throwing away keys, which I think the jury's still out on, to deleting and then replacing information with some type of unique identifier that simply states, okay, in place of Ryan's actual information, here are some identifiers, but we no longer have that information about him. So some form of de-identification process. A de-identification process is probably where the 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 loosening of that friction starts to occur. If, again, if I am this this uh, this organization that likes to sell books online and just about everything else for that matter, I probably also want to understand how people similar to Ryan shop so that I can sell them books also. And so, if Ryan's asked me not to maintain any information about him, how do I grow my business that way? This is where de-identification comes into play, of course, right? So now the only things I keep around are things I know about people like Ryan, uh, but not things that are directly identifiable to Ryan. Um, so, so that's another way. But, but to answer your question a bit more pointedly, yeah, there's there's a bit of friction in the how. You know, how do we keep it? What do we keep? How do we prove we no longer keep it? Uh, we, we get smarter every day uh, since that regulation has been put into place. And there are a lot of firm mechanisms now for being able to tackle that challenge in particular, a few of which I just mentioned. What you've described at the end there sounds a bit to me kind of like, in a way, kind of like a soft delete, where it's like, well, you know, this information is no longer attached to somebody. So now it's kind of like a, an anonymized data set that we can try to run things against. Is, is that, is, am I hearing that correctly? You're not wrong. Um, your development background might, uh, might, might come well into play here. The difference between being anonymous and de-identified, though, is, is a distinction worth, worth calling out. Because uh, it's not really a soft, soft delete. In order for it to be properly de-identified, it means it should be resistant to re-identification attacks. What does that mean? That means if I gave you a ledger with a bunch of names and other identifying information about uh, individuals inside that ledger. And then I did things like only remove two tuples of that data. For example, I removed their first name uh, and I remove their age, but I left in things like the uh, like their zip code uh, and their sex uh, and, you know, the profession area, et cetera. As I start adding in more tuples of information, it makes it easier for me to re-identify that individual. There are a couple of of well-known examples of this uh, in, in the news, if you would, um, some dating back as early as the 80s, if not, yeah, I'd say the 80s is probably the first time I've, the first paper I recall reading on, and not that I read it in the 80s, I'm not that old yet. Hopefully I will be one day. Um, 
but re-identification attacks are not new, right? Taking multiple data sets and putting them back together to re-identify folks. So you have to do more than simply kind of anonymize them from that perspective. And as a developer, and we see this often in the development world, you need real world data to work with. You can't just have a bunch of fake anonymous data in your system because the system might not respond the way you intended to. So how do you test your system without real world data? And that's where synthetic data and, and, and de-identified data can come into play there versus simply anonymized data. So it's not really a soft delete. When I think soft delete, I think I think closer to, you know, encrypted throw away the keys kind of thing. It's like, yes, theoretically, even quantum computing couldn't break that key. But theoretically, if quantum computing came around someday in the future, then there it is. It's still there waiting to be de-identified, right? So when the Gorgons show up with their supercomputer, all is lost. <laughs> <laughs> as, as organizations, you know, look to comply, with, with these sorts of regulations as they appear. I mean, uh, the ones we've talked about, GDPR, um, uh, CCPA, hey, I remember the acronym. They've been around for a while and have gone into effect. Uh, I imagine there's some work to catch up. You know, mo- most folks maybe aren't designing to already be at these standards. Well, maybe not, or most is probably incorrect, but there's probably a collection of folks that aren't there yet. As organizations seek to get there, are there any bugbears that kind of come to you that are like things that they should be watching out for? as they try to comply. You were right in your first assertion that uh, many are not, most are not in fact. And part of that is a byproduct of CCPAs literally still going through yet another round of changes and has only been in effect for under a year. Uh, GDPR has been in effect for under five years. By contrast, one of the other most famous privacy laws uh, that this, the US has is HIPAA, right? The uh, Healthcare Information Portability Accountability Act, right? So HIPAA is largely a privacy regulation, which which equally states, um, you know, the, those sixteen different identifiers of of an individual's personal health information, of protected health information, need to be protected. Um, so a lot of folks are quite behind in this in this way except for the ones that have had to have complied with things like HIPAA for quite some time. They've been, they've been dealing with similar challenges for some time. So, so they kind of have, have an understanding of how to do this. And what's one of those bugbears? What's one of those things that, that folks who've been at this for a while understand is that first and foremost, we need to even know where that data is. Without an understanding of where it is and what it is, it is literally impossible for you to, for you to be able to apply any of the other regulatory requirements to that data set, like understanding what your lawful basis for collection was, understanding who has access to it, how it's being used, what systems it it resides in and how it flows through those systems. Do you even have it at all? You can't answer any of those questions if you've not actually found it, located, identified it. I'm hearing something in there that is, um, is interesting. So, so in my experience, when, when you're like, when, when you're, when you start building an application, right? There's always kind of that stage where it matures to a point and it's grown to a point that it's like too big for any like one of the developers or designers to like really fully comprehend it in, in just a single brain, like everything it's doing. And I, it sounds like that maybe that's the case also for information architecture. At some point, you're collecting so many different pieces of connected information that like any one person doesn't have that inventory like that, that can understand exactly where everything's at. So then you start to rely on oh, like different groups having to collaborate to figure out where things are. And I imagine that can lead to, you know, through the fact that you have to communicate now, the, like essentially just not understanding the, the full scope of things. Is that, is that, is that accurate? That is accurate. I would, I would say that one of the things that we can do to, to narrow that, uh, that field of vision, if you would, that, that fog of war is by first 
making sure we understand, again, that, that basis for collection to begin with. How did we get this data? Right? Did, we, did we intake it through our book selling portal? And if so, that's where we should start. Because from there, if we're peeling some of it off and shoving it through a Kafka stream over to the left so the data science team can analyze it so they can sell more books to people like Ryan, then instead of working away from the bottom up and trying to figure out, hey, data science team, that data you have. Does it belong to Ryan? Does it belong to people like Ryan? Where'd you get it from, right? We should start from the top down and okay, so we've collected data. Where did we collect it from? What are the business reasons we currently collect data? And where are the interfaces where that occurs? And that, that's the same with when you think about an application. Where's data coming into, where does it make its way into the application, right? Where's that source before it makes its way to 99 other sinks? If you start looking at the sinks, you're going you're gonna to have a hard time trying to get everyone to, well, pun intended, sync up. Um, <laughs> but if you start at the source, then, then that does become a bit easier, but your assertion is positive. And so if, if there is somebody out there listening to this right now, and maybe they started a new organization, or maybe listening to this podcast, they realize oh, maybe I should be complying with this. Maybe there's some people I need to talk to. Uh, is, is there any advice that you would give them as they head off to start on this compliance journey? The very first tip of advice is every advice that I give you, I am not a lawyer. So you should, number one, check with in-house counsel if you have. If you don't have any, and some folks don't, right? Like small organizations, you might outsource it, you might not at all. Then you need to go back to that question that I just referenced a minute ago. What data are you collecting on people outside of your organization? How are you getting that, that information? Where's that? Who are the people that that information belongs to? If that information belongs to EU citizens, well, you might be subject to GDPR. You might not actually, because there are a bunch of other thresholds. Same is true. Are you collecting, do you do business in California and, and do you do business with California residents? Then you might. Again, there are other thresholds. There are revenue thresholds, there's size thresholds. So your organization may be too small to have, to have fallen inside of any of these regulatory uh, requirements, um, but they may not. So the first step is just even understanding, do I meet those minimum thresholds? And there, there are a number of resources that uh, break some of those things down. You know, at my organization in particular, at Spearn, we've got a wonderful gentleman by the name of Scott Giordano. Shout out to Scott Giordano, um, who has a number of resources and, and blog posts and other webinars, et cetera, that we give on just that topic in particular. Um, the IAPP, an organization that spends their time uh, focused on this privacy challenge, has a lot of resources on that as well. The, what am I thinking? I'm thinking the Freedom Fow. There's another one that I wanted to, to toss out there and it, it's killing me that I don't know. Um, Future of Privacy Forum. That's what I was thinking. The Future of Privacy Forum. That's another great resource that, that uh, folks can go and, and start getting up to speed on. So one thing I wonder about with, with these, uh, these regulation changes is if, it could cause uh, kind of like larger strategic shifts in the sort of business models that tech companies are using. Uh, for example, is it possible that we might see a shift away from the model where a service is free because you're essentially trading like the data about you for the value of the service? And that's kind of like how you're paying for it. As you kind of look at the space, do you, do you see that the potential for those kinds of trends happening? Well, I like to be fairly data-driven in, in most things. And uh, the truth is, to answer that question, I could look at the $70 billion that Facebook made in 2020. Um, yeah, was it $70 billion? I forget exactly what it was. No, that's the total that they've amassed. I don't recall the number exactly off the top of my head. I, I'd have to, to go pull it up. But it's a really large number. 
Yeah, I feel like it's in the 70 billion range. But nonetheless, to answer your question, that business model clearly works still. That giving the thing away for free so I can collect data is extremely profitable. We're only going to move further towards that model, not away from it. The, businesses don't look at the success of, of those types of organizations and think, yeah, that's great, but I want to do something so radically different that uh, you know I'll completely buck that trend and not take any of those lessons away. So just realistically speaking, the, the money tells us that we are going to be faced with more of this. I think the onus is on us as consumers to start deciding what is our data worth to us and how are we going to transact it? Are we getting enough in return for what we're giving up? For many of us, that answer is no. Uh, for a lot of us, I, I think the answer is not yes or no. It's simply the question hasn't been, been posed either by someone else or, or by themselves. And so they're not thinking about it in that sense. The realization that if they're not the consumer, that they are the product hasn't quite set in yet. And I, I think your comment about how profitable that model is, is maybe a good segue into, I want to take it back, back into the kind of GDPR, CCPA, those sorts of policies and talk a bit about the like incentive systems they attempt to create. If you want compliance, it, it occurs to me that something like those policies, if they want to be successful, they have to think about the, those incentives. For instance, if if you have a system of fines, right, but the fines are much lower, or, or the fine, yeah, the, the cost of the fines is much lower than the, the cost to comply, then really an organization is going to see it in their best interest to just keep doing what they're doing and pay the fines every time the regulators decide to look into it. As they, as like these policies are, do you think that they're managing that? kind of incentive system relationship effectively? No, there are a lot of perverse incentives in the world and they tend to skew towards those that can afford those, uh, those fines, right? Uh, you're, you're at one extreme example, but just kind of a more day-to-day -day example. You know, some jerk face pulls up into a handicapped parking spot and knows it is, but whatever, I'll, I'll eat the 200 bucks. That's not a lot of people, but, but there are some people, right? And it's not because they're necessarily just jerks. It's like, ah, I am more concerned with the thing I need to do right now. And that 20 bucks or 200 bucks, that's just not enough to disincentivize me from that bad behavior. So th there is certainly a, a uh, there's certainly a misalignment there of, of those things, um, you know, to pick on Facebook just a little bit more. I think they were recently fined yet again. And I think to the tune of, I don't remember, it was 100 million or less, maybe it was 200 million, whatever that number was, I recall looking at it and thinking it was a rounding error in, in their profits from the year before. And so, no, they are not incentivized to do it because of the fines. We're hopeful that they're incentivized to, to take better care of our privacy for other reasons now, though, right? Reasons like being threatened to break the organization up, um, right? So those monopolistic practices uh, that, that uh, some believe that they engage in, um, which are all part and parcel of some of, of the, this other behavior, those things might stop them from doing it. Public perception, those things might stop them from doing it. Um, so we do need to have multiple levers because I'm not saying get rid of the fines. The fines are good. The fines just don't work against some of the most egregious offenders as they challenge. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm with you on that. I think even, uh, I saw that, for example, there's like, there's like an increase, there was some increase in the fines. I think I saw there's like a 40% on, on a source I was looking at. And I think like, like one of the flashy ones in the past year was, I think Google got like a $56.6 million fine from the EU, like, which not even couch change for Google. Like, right. Uh, yeah. I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, if I change that million to a billion, that might be like a quarterly report or something yeah. for them. Uh, yeah. So it just doesn't feel like it's, 
it's 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 a it's really there. So I'm wondering, like, let's say let, I'm going to create like a theoretical scenario. Let's say that some legislative body is it's been like, Gabe, like, we want to talk to you. We're going to sit you down and have you do a, like a testimony. If, if you were to like give them advice, like how, how do we try to wrangle this behavior? Like what, what, what would you suggest to them personally? Well, I think we, we start with what I said. Fines obviously don't work at that tier. We keep the fines in place, but at that tier, we start imposing other types of sanctions, right? Uh, and uh, depending on how draconian one may or may not want to be, I think that depends on just how egregious their their infractions are. But I don't think we start with monetary and uh, you know, fines for those types of organizations. Uh, we, we start with monitoring. Um, you know, we saw this back in the 2000s when uh, when Microsoft um, was under the microscope for their for some of their monopolistic practices. Our government literally installed a number of, of compliance monitors, basically. They said, all right, for the next 10 years, you will answer these questions to these people and you can't get rid of them. Like they, they will be crawling all up inside your organization until we feel comfortable that you are no longer, you know, participating in these types of activities. Uh, they equally threaten to break break some of those things up. In fact, we we broke up some things. Um, I don't recall the last time we broke up in this country any large business. I'm I'm fairly certain I'm old enough that if I jog my memory, I can think of, and I mean big businesses like you know like the Ma Bell of of the the '70s breakup style. It may be time to return to that. And I know that that is, is something that's currently being talked about in, in some legislative circles. And I know it's, it's a bit of a taboo conversation. Um, but obviously, the, our current approach is not working. So we have two choices. We can continue to let every single citizen uh, be at the mercy of, of these outcomes and events, whether those things are are. are individuals taking advantage of us financially, maybe manipulating our, our emotions and feelings for political gain or simply profiting from us. That, that's the other side of this coin. Like we, we allow those things to happen. Um, we can't let capitalism just go rampantly unchecked in the face of real harm to people. And I don't feel like that is such a hot take that labels like, you know, bleeding heart liberals should be applied to it. It's like, no, we just, we just shouldn't. Because it's literally everyone that's affected by it. All of a society is affected by it negatively. As you're thinking about the, the future of the data privacy space, what's something you're worried about? And then on the other end, what's something that is giving you a lot of hope? I'm worried that we would not have learned our lessons from the cybersecurity space when it comes to attracting and retaining talent that is capable of solving these problems. It is equally not as esoteric as some might make it out to seem. And we are going to equally be faced with a shortage of, of individuals coming to the space. And it's not because they're not there. It's because I don't think we're looking for and attracting talent with transferable skill sets to address these problems. And we're not just going to natively grow them all from the ground up and take the next generation of, of, of kids and, you know, have them all get degrees in data privacy. And ah, there you go. Problem solved. That, that won't do it. We'll have to recognize that there are transferable skills, that there are engineers that can help us solve this problem because the problem does need to be solved at engineering levels as well. And they don't need to be privacy professionals, but they do need to understand, they being engineers such as yourself, they do need to understand, okay, if I build this application just to collect as much information as I can because I can, that's problematic, right? There's no reason for your mobile app to requ request access to everything. 
you don't need access to everything. So it's things like that, like actually putting in place um, the, the types of controls, but the knowledge of those controls to folks who are inadvertently making some of these decisions. And that's the hopeful part of it, if, if I would, is that there are people that are endeavoring on, on this at the moment. The IAPP, again, for example, are there's a strong movement to to bring developers in particular into that fold. Um, there's folks like uh, Nishant, Nishant, who was on our podcast recently. Uh, he heads up privacy over at uh, engineering privacy over at Uber, um, who does an amazing job of helping his teams understand the role privacy plays in the products they build. So there's a lot of hope out there for me. As we get to the, the tail end of our conversation, uh, a thing we tend to do on Civic Tech Chat is leave some space at the end uh, for the guests to kind of give us an idea of what they'd like us to leave this conversation thinking about. So for you, uh, Gabe, in this conversation, uh, what, what should we leave it thinking about? I'd like everyone to leave thinking about how they can make this personal to themselves. The, in much the same way I I turned one of your questions to yourself and asked you as a developer, or as a person even, before I turned it on to you as a developer, how you see these things is we we should all make this person to ourselves so that we can understand what role we can play in, in these challenges versus simply saying, ah, that sounds like a problem that Gabe needs to go solve for. And he can call me back next Monday once he's figured it out. Well, Gabe, uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us here on Civic Tech Chat. I, I have no doubt that folks listening in are going to learn something and gain something valuable uh, that they can kind of incorporate into what they're doing. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure was mine. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at civictechchat, visit us on the web at civictech.chat, or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts. 